In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and that darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. O oh, star of wonder, star of light, star of royal beauty bright, lived and led full of grace and truth, bringing sight in the night, making children of light, to shine like stars in the dark, revealing the way to the way. Out of His fullness we believed and received grace in place of grace, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, and we cry, Holy, Holy, Holy! For the true light that gives life has come into the world. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here. Those of you here in Bellingham, those of you with us in Skagit and online, and uh, with the live stream and Boca Raton at uh, the Trinity Church of God. We're in the third week of our series, Light in Life. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that my desire is that in this series and in this uh, season that we would go beyond the little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. And this year we would have Christmas for grown-ups in this context in that we would, that we would um, go farther on and deeper in and higher up as we stretch our minds, expand our faith, and enhance our worship, looking at this passage out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, not just in the weekend services, but every day in our own lives, in our, at our homes, to be able to look in those scriptures. And hopefully you've been doing that to allow the truth to just wash over your mind and your heart and to bring about transformation. John does some incredible things as he talks about the birth of Christ. He doesn't just look at the history of the birth of Christ, but the mystery behind it. And as we mentioned, whereas Matthew and Luke in their gospel accounts, they zoom in on a small gathering around a manger, around a child. John zooms out on this global uh, scale, uh, looking not just at, at the first uh, you know, day of his life, but looking back before there was even time, before there was eternity and, and the, the Jesus that existed then. And what we have found is as we zoom out and see this global cosmic level of truth that we can apply those to our individual lives. The, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the church in Corinth when he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, this creation account has made his light shine in our hearts. <clears throat> Excuse me, the recreation to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That here he goes back and he says, this is what God did at the beginning. This is what God is doing. This is what he's done in our lives. And it allows us to grow in our understanding of God as we see Jesus, this pre-existent one, as John would write about. This one who is one with the Father. The one who is the creator of all things. The one who brings life, not just biological life, but life in all of its depths, depth and meaning and significance. The one who brings light to our dark world and the light that will not be extinguished. And the one who offers this to anyone who would receive and believe his name. And he pins this beautiful thing that we've been looking at, this prologue to his gospel, John 1, 1 through 18. Now today, the goal is that we would finish up uh, the final part that we've been looking at, verses 14 through 18, but as he writes this, this poetic theological treatise, this, this piece of, of, of uh, just wonderful truth, he starts off in this way and he says, in the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were created. Without him, nothing was created that has been created. Nothing has been made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man sent from God. His, his name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him everyone might believe. He himself was not the light, but just came as a witness to the light. Because the true light that gives light to everyone was coming to the world. And he's in the world, and though the world was created through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to those that were his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, 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 yet to anyone, to those who would receive him, to those who would believe in his name, he would give the right, the authority, the privilege, the opportunity to be called children of God. Children not born of, of natural, uh, natural circumstances, not, not born of a human decision, not born of a husband's will, but born of God. And then he gets to this verse. John chapter 1, verse 14, who William Barclay in his commentary says, this is the single greatest verse in all of the New Testament. We find in this verse the message, the essence of the message of the gospel all contained in one verse. This verse is so incredible. We will look at it today and we will revisit it next week. It will be our, our landing point and our, it, the, the entire framework of our Christmas Eve celebration will be on this verse. But he writes this verse, John 1, 14, the word, the logos, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So much in this one single verse. In the beginning, here's this word, and now this word becomes flesh. That's the message of Christmas, right? That the divine becomes human. That the invisible becomes visible that the infinite becomes finite, that the immortal becomes mortal, that the uncreated is created, that the unlimited limits himself to this baby in a manger. And then it goes on, and it uses this word twice, glory. Now, glory has two syllables. I was born and raised in Louisiana. In the South, glory has more than two syllables. Glory has three syllables with an emphasis of an inhale at the end. In the South, you say, glory. <gasps> Especially if you're a Southern preacher. So I, I'm going to say it again for you, and then I need you to say it, because I want you to understand how it would be said if you were in the South. It's glory. <gasps> so there's three syllables and then an inhale. Let's try it all together. One, two, three. Here we go. Glory. <gasps> yeah. yeah. And Boca, you guys do this all the time. You, you know what you're talking about down there. This glory, and he says he comes with this glory. He comes with glory. And it's an amazing thing. Glory is, a, glory is a Christmas word. I mean, you think about Luke 2, the Christmas narrative. And the angel of the Lord showed up to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. Old school, they were sore afraid. That's a point we'll come back to in a minute. But the glory of the Lord shone round about them. There's brilliance of the glory of the Lord. And after that message was given, there was a whole host of heavenly uh, uh, beings, and they were saying, glory to God in the highest. 
And later, after the shepherds went to see this baby, they returned, praising and glorifying the Lord. So you see this, this word glory, it's kind of a Christmas word. But to understand it, you have to go back way before the Christmas narrative, way before Jesus was first born there in, in Bethlehem. You have to go clear back into the, the deep recesses of the Old Testament, clear back to Exodus. The word in Hebrew, glory, is the word kabod. It's actually probably pronounced kabod, but for the sake of those in the spit zone, I will not be using that. I'm going to say it's the kabod. And the word kabod is a beautiful word. It's hard to understand. Kabod is, is like, is like um, sp the splendor and the honor the literal translation would be the weight, the, the, the heaviness, almost this burden. Now, some of you who are in your 60s, you remember 40, 45 years ago, you'd say, heavy. It's just like there's, there's something here. And that's just this, this glory, this, this heaviness, this, this weight. In fact, in, uh, in the 20th century, one of the greatest minds in Christianity was C.S. Lewis. And he gave a talk, and the title of that talk actually became a title of a book, that included some chapters of other talks, and it was the weight of glory, this heaviness of the glory of God. If you wanted to define glory, it would be like the manifested excellence of the magnificent character of God. It's like the, the revelation of his goodness. That's what the glory is. It's this, this manifested excellence, if there could be such a thing. And, and, and it's just this magnificent goodness and character of God. So when Isaiah... In Isaiah, he comes into the very throne where, where God is, and, and he's like terrified by this whole thing. And the angelic beings are saying, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your glory. Like the whole earth, it's just an expression of the goodness of God. It's a manifestation of his character. It's a revelation of who he is. And it was so frightening that Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm, I'm ruined, I'm coming apart, I'm coming undone. The psalmist would write in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory, the manifestation, the glory of God, the manifestation of his goodness, of his character. And what you find in scripture is when there's a reference to the glory of God, it's associated with God's presence. They always go together, God's glory in his presence, his presence and his glory. So when the Hebrew children are being taken out of slavery after 400 years in Egypt and they're out going across uh, towards the promised land, there's an event that happens in Exodus 16. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the Chabad, the glory of the Lord appearing, the presence in the cloud. So you have his glory, you have his presence. It's there, it's in the cloud. Not only are your pictures, your music, and your documents in the cloud, the glory of the Lord before they were ever there was in the cloud. It was his presence. You remember when they were, he was being, uh, leading them, he said, my presence will go before you. And he led them through the desert by day with a pillar of a cloud. And at night there was a pillar of fire. It was, uh, some of you have never read Exodus before. It was the presence of God. It was his glory. It was the manifestation of his goodness. It was right there. And then later, when they're out in, out in the desert, there, there are times when Moses would go up on the mountain, like to get the, the Ten Commandments. And we see this, it says, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud, there it is, the cloud again, covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Now here's the glory of the Lord in his presence, and it settles there. And it was something that, while it's hard to describe, it was hard to describe even if they saw it. 
The Israelites didn't even have a category for it. They didn't have words for it. They didn't have handles to put on it. It says to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord, it, it, it looked like a, like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. It, it wasn't, but it, that's the best way we can explain it. And there's this hardship of trying to understand how do you even explain the manifestation of the excellent character of the goodness of God? And they're saying this is the best way we can do it. It's like in this cloud, there's like this consuming fire. And what you find like when the angels were terrified, when Isaiah says, woe to me, is that when you see the glory of God, there's this, this dichotomy of it is absolutely beautiful, it is absolutely terrifying, it is wonderful, it is awful, it is awe-inspiring, it is, it is frightening. And the best way I can explain this, and this is a poor analogy, but if you've ever seen a very big waterfall when the water is really high, uh, I've never been to Niagara Falls, I would imagine. Victoria Falls, Multnomah Falls, Snoqualmie Falls. If you've ever been there when the water is really rushing, you see it from a distance and it's beautiful. It's, it's glorious. It's amazing. But if you stand at the base of that, it's terrifying because the thunderous roar of this water is deafening. You recognize the power would destroy you. If you got into it, it would sweep you away and you would be no more. That's like the glory of God. It's beautiful, it's glorious, it's terrifying, it's horrible, it's powerful, it would tear me apart. And so here's this glory of the Lord. And when, when God was leading his people out into the, to the wilderness, he said, you know what, I will, I will dwell amongst you, and when you're living out there in the camp, in the wilderness, I will put my tabernacle and I will put my tent in the meeting, and that's where my glory will rest. In Exodus, it says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God says, I will let my manifest presence, my goodness, my character, dwell right among you in this tabernacle, in this tent. Now, I've highlighted two words here, the same word, covered. The covered, the Hebrew word that is translated covered is the Hebrew word shek, not shrek. Difference, donkey. This is shek. The word shek is this idea of, you know, where it covers, it, 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 it dwells here. And so Jewish uh, rabbis, they coined a phrase. It's, you know, you'll never find this, this word in the Bible, but they use this root, this shek word, to, to create this word called shekinah. So sometimes you may have heard people talk about the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah Chavad. It's the presence of the glory of God. Shekinah means that which dwells. That which dwells. And so God says, my presence will come and dwell there. And so he decides that while they're in the wilderness, his presence, his manifest excellence, his character, his goodness, his glory will dwell in a humble little tent. And then one day God says, I'm going to bring my presence and my glory. And it won't be in a cloud this time, and it won't be in fire this time, and it won't be on a mountain this time, and it won't even be in a tent this time. Now I am going to bring the glory of my presence into a humble little baby. And the word, the Lagos, this eternal God, becomes flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This dwelling, interesting, can also be translated tabernacle, like what happened in the wilderness, that God's tabernacle was amongst the people where his presence and his glory dwelt. 
was a foreshadowing pointing to what Jesus would fulfill when he comes in his glory, in his presence, tabernacles right amongst them. And John writes, we have seen his glory. This is not hearsay. It's not a rumor we picked up on somewhere along the way. This is not some myth. This isn't a legend from hundreds and hundreds of years ago that's transpired over the years. We have seen his glory. I was there. In another book that John writes called First John, he's really creative with his titles. He starts that book almost the same way he does with the gospel. In 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Same starting. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the logos, the word of life. John says, listen, I'm telling you, this isn't something that our forefathers talked about around the campfire. I was there, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. When he writes his gospel, John's probably 80 or 90 years old. He thinks back to the experiences he had when he was a young man. He writes some things in his gospel that the other gospel writers don't include. One of them happens to be early on when he first starts following Jesus, he's probably in his early 20s, and they all get invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And at that wedding, Jesus performs a miracle where he he turns water into wine. And John, when he records this, he said, this was the first miraculous sign that Jesus had showed us. And he revealed his glory. John never forgot that. You don't forget those kind of things. You might forget other details. You might even forget the wedding, but you don't forget what happened there. There were times where Jesus would take his 12 disciples away, and there were times he would take his inner circle away, like these three other guys, like his little quad. There's Peter, James, and? And? John. So they're like, Jesus? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Peter, James, and John. And he would take them away, sometimes just the, the four of them. And one time he takes these three guys with him up onto a mountain, and something happened on that mountain that they could never, ever forget. We refer to it as the Mount of Transfiguration. And as these four guys are up there, it says that there was a bright cloud. Sounds very familiar to what happened in the wilderness. A bright cloud that surrounded them, and then something happened. Jesus' face began to shine as bright as the sun, and his clothes became brilliant white. Luke says they were as bright as the flash of lightning. Mark says they're brighter and whiter than anything any bleach could ever do. And there they are, and the disciples were terrified because they're in the very presence of the glory of God manifest in front of them. And it says they saw his glory. And John says, we have seen it. We have seen I am not lying to you. I saw this with my own eyes. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only, the Father, who comes from the Father. We've seen that. In Hebrews, it says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This idea of the glory of God being in Christ isn't something that just happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, isn't even something that just started on you know, Christmas Day, that first day when he was born. This is something that has always been a part of the eternal uncreated one, Jesus. Maybe you remember at the end of his ministry, Jesus prays his prayer, not the Lord's prayer. He prays the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. 
in there, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, he prays for us. We studied this. At the beginning of this prayer, he prays these words. You know, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence, watch this, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Like the glory that I've always had. Because he is before all things. He is the creator of all things. He is God himself. And all the glory of God dwells in Christ. And he says, glorify me with that. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this one. We're really just scratching the surface. But let's move on. Uh, back to 14, it says, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's, let's talk about this for a while, because this is huge. Jesus comes, this God presence, glory, and he's full of grace and truth. John links these two together. He'll, he'll repeat this in just a couple verses. Grace and truth, and Jesus is full of grace and truth. He doesn't balance grace and truth. He doesn't have just a little bit of each of grace and truth. He has full grace. He has full truth. And I just want to tell you, this is a tension that I wrestle with all the time. This is a tension that we must wrestle with all the time as a church, as followers after Christ, in our culture, in our world, to be full of grace and truth, not grace or truth, full of both. Because while it is true that there are some churches and some pastors and some Christians who are full of grace. Everything goes, everyone's wonderful, it's all great, we celebrate everything, you're all welcome, we accept everything. Full of grace, but you begin to wonder, do you stand for anything? Are there any absolutes, are there any things that you say, this is the truth, but they're full of grace. And then there are churches that are full of truth. The word of God, they've got it down, the doctrine, they've got all these teachings, the theology is fantastic, but there's absolutely no grace at all. And if we're just full of grace, we can get to the point where we use grace as a license to sin, and if we're just full of truth, we get to the point where we use truth as a license to judge and condemn. And it's this tension, and I tell you, I wrestle with this, because I want to hold unswervingly to the word of God, to his truth. I don't want to water down. I don't want to waver from. I don't want to ever stray away from the truth of the the word of God, but I also want to be full of grace. Do you see the tension there? Jesus is full of grace and full of truth, and he calls us as his followers to be full of grace and full of truth. Not grace or truth, grace and truth. Completely filled with both. This grace, how beautiful is grace? You know, think about, and I've shared this with you, the the difference. Justice is getting what I deserve. You know, we say, we want justice. You know, actually, you really don't. I mean, you shouldn't. I mean, yes, justice in our world. But standing before a holy God, the last thing you want is justice. I'm just telling you. If you think, no, I want to stand before God and I want to get just what I deserve, you don't understand yourself and you don't understand a holy God. Justice is getting what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I could never deserve. 
You know, in studying and preparing for this sermon, I, I read this thing, I, th- I thought this was kind of a cool concept, the difference even between mercy and grace. That this one author was saying, mercy is where in my brokenness, in my sinfulness, in my fallenness, in the mess that I create, when I come to realize I have made a mess of my life, my situation, my whatever it might be, my circumstance, and I can't fix my mess, and I can't be good enough to get out of my mess. In my mess, I recognize that, and I turn to a God, and I plead for mercy. I plead for his compassion. I plead for his goodness. That's mercy, and he gives it. Grace is God in all of his goodness, in the character of his glorious, wonderful love and, 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 and goodness of God. He is the one who says, I will leave the 99 and go seek after the one who's lost. And I will continue to seek after the one who's lost, even if that one doesn't necessarily want to be found, even if that one doesn't even know that he or she is lost, even if that one intentionally got lost, is like being lost, this God of grace says, I will pursue you. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not us saying, hey, I've got a problem here. Christ, would you do this? He says, I've already done this for you. And he is full of grace. So I, I kind of put together this, it's not a theological uh, accurate definition of grace. It's a bunch of words that I, I liked and some made up, put together for a definition of grace. This, grace, the generous, undeservable, not sure if that's a word, unearnable, again, the generous, undeservable, unearnable, too good to be true, windfall of goodness. I need this in my life. You need this in your life. And here's the crazy thing. The only one who didn't need grace was actually full of grace. The only one who ever walked this planet who didn't need grace, Jesus, was full of grace. And he's not just full of grace, grace and truth. That he speaks the truth. He doesn't water down the truth. He doesn't back away from the truth. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus would say, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, he would say, I am the truth. And he says later, I will send you my spirit of truth. Here's the truth. We have all sinned and fallen short of the what? Glory, the chabad, the glory, this righteousness, the goodness of God. We've all messed up. The truth is, none of us will ever be good enough to earn our way or deserve our way back into the right relationship with God. That's the truth. And Jesus never backed away from that truth. You know, he's sitting there with Matthew and his friends, they're tax collectors, they're crooks, they're thieves. And he says, it's the sick who need the doctor. And you can imagine Matthew saying, you're calling us sick? Yeah. Spiritually, you guys are a mess, but I'm having dinner with you, and I'm inviting you into the kingdom, and I'm saying I want you to be a part of my my group, my my kingdom, my my plan here. There's grace and there's truth. The woman caught in the very act of adultery, he doesn't come to her and say, "Ah, don't worry about it. We need to empower you to be more liberated sexually. You know, just just go on. He says, no, 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 this is sin. It's sin, that's the truth. But go and sin no more, that's the grace. You see that he has both of these. The grace and the truth in all of life. It's no wonder, and we won't spend any time, okay, I shouldn't say that because I'm getting ready to spend some time on We're not gonna spend a lot of time on verse 15 because we talked about it last week. 
But that's where John the Baptist says, you know, this one that comes after me is like greater than me because he was before me. When John recognizes that Jesus is the incarnation of the infinite God, and he's the personification of the Chabad, the glory of God, and he is full of both grace and truth. It's no wonder he says, listen, 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 I've got to decrease, he's got to increase. It's all about him because of who Jesus is. And then we get to verse 16, and verse 16 says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Now, this is one of those verses, like last week we looked at that, the darkness has not understood it, you think that, I think that's cool, but I don't know what it means. This is one of those verses, going into this series, I thought, I like, I think I like what this verse says, I just don't know what it means. So I want us to spend some time on this, because this is pretty amazing, this is pretty beautiful. First, it says, out of his fullness, remember who we're talking about, the fullness, like Christ is, is the sum total of God. And it's not like he's just got a little bit left over over here. He's just skimming a little bit for you. He is full of grace and truth. We're talking about Costco-sized warehouse full. Out of his fullness, out of the fullness of God, of who he is, his manifest glory in Christ, in his fullness of grace and truth, out of his fullness, we all, not just Peter, James, and John, not just the 12 disciples, not just the chosen nation of Israel, we all have received this grace. And then there's this phrase, and if this week you were reading the scriptures in different translations and different versions, you know that it's stated different ways. And what I want us to do for a few minutes is take this next phrase, like we did last week with that darkness understanding, and just turn it and look at some different facets of it. What does this mean, this grace that he's talking about here? And one way to understand it is to see it as this abundant grace. The abundant grace, in the English Standard Version, it talks about grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Like there's just more of it. There's just this overflow, this, this wellspring of grace. It's just more and more upon more upon more. Like it just, it's not just like occasionally, like maybe once a year a fat man comes down your chimney and leaves you a couple gifts of grace under the tree. This is every day, all day, every day, more grace, more grace. It just keeps coming. I picture a grandmother who sees her grandson that's been off to college living on a steady diet of macaroni and cheese and top ramen. He's lost 15 pounds and she comes out with a mashed potato. Son, you gotta put some weight on. And she just gives like, Grandma, I haven't finished. Eat some more. And she just keeps heaping it on. That's his grace upon grace. God, I can't take anymore. Have some more grace. I haven't even use up the last. Here's some more grace. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you. It's this quantity that just never runs out. You just get more and more and more of this grace out of his fullness, who is full of grace. He just gives more. And it's not just the quantity, but it's the quality to, to recognize the beauty. I, I don't know if there's ever been a situation where you just think it just, it just can't get any better, and then it does. I don't know, like if you've ever been reading a book, and you're like, I love this book, it just can't get any better, and you turn a page, and it does. You're at a concert, and they play the song, it's like, oh, that's so great, it just can't get any better, and it does. It just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better, and you think, I, 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 it won't get any better, and it just does. Last summer, when my wife and I walked across Spain, we were instructed by several people, when you get to the end, when you get to Finisterre, which was in ancient days seen as the end of the world, the end of the earth, make sure you go and watch the sunset into the Atlantic. So we did. We got there, and 
That night we went out there, out by the lighthouse, and sat on the, on the deal and watched the sunset. And, and I took this picture. I know, you guys say, yeah, I see that at Lummi Island all the time, not a big deal. Okay, just, just give me a little grace here. Give me a little grace here, okay? So this was a sunset. We're sitting there watching this, you know, the history of behind all this and where this place was and all this. And the sunset, and I was just like, oh, it's so beautiful. Just couldn't get any better. And then a few minutes later, I was like, oh, that's even better. You could see across the horizon kind of this haze, and as the sun was going down, it kind of got into the haze, and went, oh, look at the colors. Hashtag no filter, iPhone 7. <laughs> and the sun kept going down, and the, oh, it's so beautiful. It's like, it can't get any better, and it just keeps getting better. That's the grace. Grace upon grace, not just in quantity, but in quality, the beauty of God's grace. I grew up as a little boy singing the song. This one was not in the hymn book. This little song that we sing, this little chorus we sing, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Sweeter than the day before. That's why in 2 Peter, the whole book ends with these words, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? The more you understand, the more you experience, the more you live in, the more you get of God's grace, the more and more beautiful it becomes. Right now you may be saying, I get God's grace, it is amazing, it is truly amazing. You keep walking in God's grace, you keep understanding, you keep studying God's grace, five years from now, 10 years from 20 years from now, you're saying, I had no clue, it's even more beautiful than ever before. That's the grace of God that just abounds, grace upon grace in quantity and quality, and not just in beautiful sunsets, even in and maybe especially in the ugliness of our sin. In Romans chapter five, Paul writes, where sin increased, grace did much more increase. You can't out-sin the grace of God. See, if we just stop there, there is enough there to stretch our mind, to deepen our faith, to enhance our worship. Let's turn it, let's, there's one more facet. Let's go another way. Not just this grace that is abundant, but a grace that is dynamic. Grace that is dynamic. Again, out of the NIV it says, grace in place of grace. And what I mean by grace that's dynamic is not static. And what I mean by that is that the grace of God is commensurate, it's equivalent, it's adequate for whatever circumstance, whatever situation we're going through. It's not one size fits all, it's one source meets all. Because the truth is, there are different seasons of life, there are different circumstances in life, there are different situations in life that require a different kind or different source or different amount of grace. When you're young and got the world by the tail, there's a certain amount of grace you need, and it's a different kind of grace. When you're older in the sunset years of your life, you need grace, but it's a different kind of grace than you need it in your 20s. When things are going great and it's prosperity and everything's wonderful, you need grace in those periods. When there's difficulties, there's hardships, there's afflictions, there's sorrow, there's doubt, you need a different kind of grace there. I hesitated using this example because I can't believe we teach our children this. In the story of Goldilocks, who trespassed, broke into a home, rummages through their food, and then, in a creepy way, goes into all of their beds. We teach our children this. 
It's no wonder our culture's in the mess it's in. Goldilocks goes in, and her first stop is at the table where there's porridge. One's too hot, one's too cold, but baby bear's porridge is... And Jesus said, whatever your circumstance, the grace I have for you is just right. And Paul writes about this circumstance, this season, this situation. He's going, doesn't give us a lot of detail. He just refers to it as a thorn in the flesh. He says, it is so bad, it is a messenger of Satan. He pleads with God, get me out of this, take this away from me, deliver me from this, get it away. And Jesus responds, my grace is sufficient for you. For the season you're in, for the circumstance that you're facing, for the thorn that is still there, I have a grace for you that is just right. You know, I think about Christmas season. I don't know, 11, 11 or so years ago, my mother-in-law, Darlene, my wife's mom, died on Christmas Eve. None of us were expecting it. We needed a certain grace that year. A year later, on December 7th, my dad died. We needed a different grace for that season. I talked to a lady this week, prayed with her. She's part of our church for many, many years. She's in a battle with cancer, four, stage four, rounds and rounds of chemo. She said, the doctors don't have any hope that this chemo will cure this. They'll just slow it down. Barring a miracle from God, this will be her last Christmas. She's this weekend seeing her grandchildren from the East Coast for possibly the last time. She and her family need a special grace for this circumstance, for this season. And some of you, maybe a first year without a loved one, maybe a year that around the table, there's a, a, a child that's that it's estranged, a spouse that's no longer a part of the family, whatever it might be, and you just need a special grace for this season, for this time. Grace in place of grace. Let's turn it again. There's this grace that is beneficial. The old King James says, grace for grace. Like, we're on the receiving end of this outflow, this, this well of God's goodness and grace that he just pours it in more and more and more and more. And maybe the whole reason he pours so much grace into us is so that we can turn around and pour it into a world that is not filled with grace. Individuals that don't have grace, that we can receive his grace so that we can pass it on to others. Last night, last night, I was leaving church uh, after the, the Saturday night service. I was on my way to my car. Someone was driving in our church parking lot to pick someone up. Uh, an act of service is a beautiful thing. As they were turning into our parking lot, for whatever reason, the car behind them was agitated and just laid on the horn all the way across the front of our property down northwest. Just laid on the horn. And inside of me, my thought was, I hope they get a ticket. I hope they blow a tire. And then, like this nudge, not, not a voice, but there's just this Holy Spirit nudge saying, hey, Bob, what did you just preach on? <laughs> Dope. Grace for that person. Grace for grace. Some of you in the next 10 days are going to have some people in your home, 
some people around the table, some extended family members, some in-laws, some boyfriends and girlfriends that are EGRs, extra grace required. And God says, I will just give you the grace to pass on. Just be Teflon. I will keep pouring it in. You pass it on. You just get it and you take it. And, and just to have this grace. Hebrews says that we can approach the throne of grace in our time of need. To just pour out more grace. All right, one more facet. You turn it one more time. And you see this grace that is complete. It's complete. In the Holman standard, Christian Standard Bible, it talks about this, this grace after grace. And what he'll talk about in, in uh, verse 17, we'll get to in a minute, is that there was a certain type of Old Testament grace. There was a grace in the Old Testament. There was a grace in the law. But then there was this grace after grace that didn't, didn't abolish that grace, but fulfilled it. Another grace that completed it. When you begin to see this picture that he paints for us here, that out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. He says, I've already given it to you. The warehouse already has your name. I keep restocking it. It's just waiting for you to receive it. I have this grace for you that's abundant. I have this grace for you that's beneficial. I have this grace that's complete. I have this grace that is dynamic. It is just waiting for you. It's already been given to you. And what you begin to see that it's, it's ever accessible and never exhaustible. It's just there. He says, I'm full of grace and I've got this grace for you. Come and get it. It'll never run out. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Real quickly, and I don't have time to spend a lot on this. This Old Testament law, there was a grace in that. The law was given because God had chosen them to have a relationship. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God, and then he starts the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, here's some commandments, you wanna follow these, then I will be the Lord your God. He had already shown them grace. I have chosen you, you're my chosen people. I will be your God. Here's how you live in a right relationship with me. That was a form of grace. Here's the problem with the law. We can't keep it. We keep breaking it. And when you break the law, you're guilty. And when there's guilty, there's judgment. And there's judgment has condemnation. That's a problem. Until Jesus comes, full of grace and truth. The truth is still there. This is still how you have a right relationship with God. I know you fall short. That's where my grace comes in. And for the first time, for the first time, John uses this proper name. Up to this point, he's talked about the word, the one, the light, the life, and he says, let there be no mistake who I'm talking about now. It's Jesus Christ. You remember in Matthew where it says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people. Jesus was the, the Greek name for Joshua. Joshua, the Savior, Christ, the Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach, the Savior who is the Messiah, comes to bring this grace to you. And then he circles back around to where he starts in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Jesus says, you want to see the glory of God? You want to know who God is? Eugene Peterson in this verse 18 says, he made him as plain as day. Like the guesswork is over. Now you can see the glory of God without the terror. In Timothy, we read these words. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. This God who is immortal becomes mortal in Christ. This God who is unapproachable in its unapproachable light becomes approachable, the light of the world, and now can be seen. This Jesus, as Dale Brunner says, Jesus is God's autobiography. He is the autobiography of God. He says, here, look at my life, read my life, follow my life, and you will see God, the full expression of the Godhead. What we find in Jesus, what we see revealed in Jesus, the presence of the glory of God in Jesus, helps us to see and understand God's goodwill toward us and his good work in us. God has nothing but goodwill towards us. He has nothing but love and wants the very best for us. And he will even do that work within us. And it's found in Christ Jesus. The word, the logos, this infinite God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled right within us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full, full of grace and truth. In an interview uh, one time, Bono of U2 fame, Bono said, there's really only two ways to live life. One is with karma and one was with grace. And karma is this idea that somehow there will be this cosmic justice that takes place and somewhere along the way, you will get what you deserve. Grace is this idea that there's this divine outpouring of goodness of things that you could never deserve. And he said, and I would agree with him, I would much rather have grace than karma because I don't want what I deserve. I want what Christ has given for me. And what we find on the cross of Jesus Christ is this unwavering truth, this standard of justice, the standard of holiness and righteousness, the truth of God unwavering. The grace of God that's inexhaustible and the glory of God that is unspeakable all personified in Christ Jesus. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts and gave us the light of the understanding, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I wanna read some familiar words to you and I wanna ask you to not anticipate where these words are going and finish the sentence for me. I want you to stop and try to hear them again in the depth of these words that some of you have sang your whole life. It's the third verse of Hark the Herald Angels. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild, he lays his glory by. Born, that man no more shall die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory, glory to the newborn king. 